Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. Here we are, a brand new year, and this one's going to be a big one. I'm so excited to introduce you all to loads more Aussie authors and their fabulous books in the coming months, and I couldn't have asked for a better way to leap into the new series than with my next guest author. She is a USA Today best-selling author of seven contemporary fiction novels. With over a million books sold and translated into more than 20 languages, her titles include Me Without You, Before I Let You Go, The Things We Cannot Say, and her latest, Truths I Never Told You. She writes books that explore themes and dilemmas that test the strength of human relationships. With compassion and insight, she tackles complex issues such as addiction, parenting children with disabilities and postnatal depression, just to name a few. I'm thrilled to welcome Kelly Rimmer to the podcast today. Hi, Kelly. Hi, thanks. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) And deservedly so. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Kelly, I wanted to congratulate you on yet another beautiful novel in Truths I Never Told You. It was a compelling, relatable read in so many ways, offering much food for thought. I absolutely loved it. Oh, thank you so much. Can I start with what inspired you to write this particular story? This is this is a classic example of the crazy way that my writer's mind works. Um, I had a list of these little ideas that I wanted to explore at some point down the track. I had wanted to write about postnatal depression for a really long time, but I just couldn't quite figure out the right concept to explore the the idea through or the the problem through. Um, So I had kind of tucked that away in the back of my mind for a future you know, a future book. Um, and I wanted to write about, I can't say too much about the specifics of it, but there was this particularly interesting referendum that happened in Seattle. And I wanted to explore the environment that led to that referendum. So that was tucked away in the back of my mind. Um, and then I wanted to write about a family. I have um, two sisters and a brother, and they were all, you know, in theory, grown ups now. When we get together, it's can be quite playful and we, we, you know, we bicker and we fight, but we're also all fairly close. And I wanted to write about a family like that. Um, And then I just, those ideas didn't necessarily connect in my mind until one day I was out walking my dogs and listening to a radio lab podcast. And it was about this um, quite specific type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. And Bolero, who, um, um, Ravel, who wrote Bolero and how he was probably suffering from it and another artist who had had the disorder and for whatever reason that podcast just triggered this crazy combination in my mind and I I literally ran home and sat down at the computer and wrote the outline and that outline basically became this book I pretty much followed it so um, it was just this weird moment of I don't know just everything came together in the right way and, and out popped a book. So that was the, that's the story of where the inspiration came from. Oh, that's brilliant. Now, I've been lucky enough to read this beautiful book, but for those who haven't read it yet, can you tell us a little bit more about the story? Sure. So part of the book is set in the late 1950s and we have Grace, who is a mother to four young children. Um, and Grace Grace is living in a time where marriages worked in a quite a different way to the way that marriages work today for the most part. And she's living in 
society's changed so much since the 50s and Grace is, Grace is living through the way it used to be. Um, and she's really struggling with motherhood, but she doesn't have the language to explain necessarily. That, you know, the postnatal depression wasn't recognised um, until 1996. So she's a long way from understanding that what's happening to her and the way that she's struggling isn't actually her fault. Um, and in, in 1996, coincidentally, we have Beth, who is Grace's daughter. And Beth's dad, Patrick, is quite sick. He's got dementia and heart failure. And the family has just made the heartbreaking decision to move Patrick into a nursing home. And Beth, who has a young son and is struggling herself, um, she offers to clean out the family home. And Patrick has been the ideal father. She adores him. Um, but as she climbs the stairs to the family attic, she finds the door is locked. And when she finally gets through the door, she discovers some notes that suggest that maybe the way that she's understood their family isn't quite the way that it really was. Um, all Beth knows about Grace is that she died um, ostensibly in a car accident when Beth was very young. And so through the, the, the chaos in the attic, as she starts to clean it up, she begins to understand her family in a whole new way. Yeah, I mean, it was a fascinating read full of twists and turns and complications that I couldn't really envisage when I first started reading. Now, as you mentioned, the book is set in Seattle and Washington in the United States, and you've mentioned there was a particular reason reason for writing that. Can you tell us anything more about, you know, the reason for setting a book overseas? (laughs) That's a really tricky question. Um, I'm I'm trying to avoid a spoiler, but um, there the climate, the environment was a little different. So there's, there's a, there is a reason for it. And I think by the end, by the time readers get to the end, they, I think they'll understand why I've chosen to set the book there. But, but they'll have to read it probably okay. to figure it out. Well, that's very good impetus <laughs> and inspiration. So now, as I mentioned in my introduction, I think you have a, a great knack for tackling diff- difficult subjects in your books, um, issues which I think force your characters into a difficult moral predicament. And Truths I Never Told You is no exception. I wondered, therefore, if you worry that sometimes some subjects are just too difficult to deal with. Oh, that's a really good question, too. I really, really... I wanted to write about some of the stuff in this book, but I was really scared to do it because um, whenever you tackle these tricky situations that people survive, there you have to do so in a way that is respectful and and um, and. Uh, accurate you know so I do so much research with my books my biggest fear is that I'll get something wrong you know or that these things are so specific particularly with postnatal depression I interviewed I think it was 13 or 14 women as I was writing this book and everyone had such a different journey I kind of had thought that in the beginning I would hear a lot of similar tales of sadness but but people weren't talking so much about sadness as these other struggles that I just hadn't expected. And so I, I'm, I worry not so much that um, things will be too difficult to tackle, but that I won't do a good enough job with the research or that I, I won't capture the reality. You know, these you have to honour people's experiences. And particularly when I've been lucky enough to sit down and do this series of interviews with people, you it's really, really, really important that I do it well. So 
I'm not so scared of the issues. I'm scared of not doing a good job. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I guess that leads really nicely to my next question. And obviously, you know, we've talked about postnatal or postpartum depression as being a really um, important element of this book. And I have to say that I've not read another novel that deals with this issue in the first person point of view in the way that you've dealt with it in this book. How interesting. Yeah, and mm, I hadn't thought of that. No, I mean, I've, obviously, I haven't read every book in the world, but my experience is that I've not come across that before. So I wanted to ask you, because of that perspective that you've taken, that first person point of view, how difficult was it for you to get inside your character's head to describe how they felt and how they viewed the world with such emotion and poignancy? I. I, I love writing in first person. It is my my go-to preference. It has to be a really solid reason for me to shift from that point of view because for me the magic of writing and reading is getting inside the mind of the character and it's it's such a, an amazing way to walk in someone else's shoes. Mm. And so, um, so, so for me it was this book and actually most of my books, it was always going to be first person and it was always going to be I am trying to write quite an intimate story I want it to feel like you have just sat down over a cup of tea and you're having a conversation with a friend and they're telling you what happened I don't want to use I don't think I write particularly flowery or particularly clever language I want it to be personal and intimate and so um but that's the challenge with writing two protagonists who both have um, both are really struggling and both are quite depressed um, writing that in a way depression is hard and it's actually quite ugly and it's it can be really hard to be around someone who is depressed and to write two characters with depression in a way that wasn't hard to read and and quite depressing in itself that was really really mm. challenging um, and and I think the 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 thing that helped me overcome that challenge and that concern was actually those interviews again because in talking to those women the one consistent thing that came out of every conversation was a sense of isolation and a sense of loneliness even the women who didn't feel sad felt completely alone or disconnected and so um so I've tried to focus on capturing that through Grace and through Beth's stories um so I think I yeah I think that the key is to have conversations and, you know, to read widely and to, I listen to, um, I actually listen to hundreds of hours of podcasts um, and oral history podcasts that I particularly lent upon, mm. um, but it was the conversations that really unlocked it for me. One thing I found especially relatable from both Grace and Beth's experiences of motherhood is this notion that women are expected to know what to do with their babies and they're given such an immense responsibility to care for their children, often alone. Um, And I I know that you mentioned that the thing that came out of your interviews was the isolation, the loneliness and the disconnection that these women feel. Now, I know things are changing and thankfully many more fathers these days are taking on an active uh, caring role for their children. But caring for infants and children most often falls to the mother. And there was one scene in the book that particularly resonated with me and where Beth says something along the lines that when she and her husband left the hospital with a baby that she kept thinking someone was going to stop them and question her capacity or capability of looking after this child. And then later she wonders why her husband would trust her so implicitly with their baby's care. Is this something, whether or not you agree, that this was something that's just assumed, that women automatically know how to care for these fragile creatures it's part of the crazy expectations that we as a society put on women we are supposed to somehow know uh, 
how to do this job that is harder than any other job that you would do in your life. You know, we're supposed to somehow have this innate capacity to understand the care needs of an of an infant. Mm-hmm. And it, it is bonkers. Like it is just, it is so unfair that in times past, perhaps women might have had a stronger support network, more of a village. But these days, I think particularly now in the Instagram age where parenthood is often described as you know, the the best thing I ever did, and I'm a mum too, and it is the best thing I ever did, but it's, it is hard and it's not necessarily something that we can just know how to do. Um, and so I, I've, I think that really contributes to the way that sometimes we feel ashamed when we're struggling, but it, it actually makes sense that we would struggle when we are given this really difficult task that and we're expected to do it sleep deprived recovering from birth which is one of the most intense things a human being can go through and then we assume often as mums full-time care of a little person who is its own person with its own needs and we don't always have the support that we need yeah I couldn't agree with you more best experience was just so telling for me. I really hope that, you know, as, you, as you're writing a book, you're often thinking about what will people talk about? You know, if someone's reading this at a book club, what conversations are they going to have? And one of the conversations that I really hope someone somewhere after reading it has is, is, <laughs> is about the hard stuff. Yeah. You know, we talk about the rush of love and we talk about how wonderful it is when the, when a kid says, I love you, mummy, for the first time, but we don't talk about the difficult stuff. And I, I really hope that as a society, we can move to a more honest, uh, honest expectations of what it's going to be like and honest representations of, of how hard it can be. Indeed. So using the dual timelines in this story was, I thought, a wonderful tool for comparing the past and the present and showing how different women's lives were in the late 1950s compared to now. I mean, we're only talking 60 or 70 years ago, but the freedoms that we enjoy today fought for and won by previous generations can be easy to forget, can't they? For sure. Yes. Um, and so so Grace is existing in a time before ready access to contraception. And when I was researching this book, I was at a dinner party and I mentioned, you know, you know, people ask, what are you writing about now? And I start talking about grace and about life before the pill. And I then, I, you know, talking to my friends, I said, well, can you imagine what your life would look like if you hadn't been able to access contraception? And it just was such a shocking thought for all of us that control over our fertility is such a new concept. You know, there were generations of women who survived in a world where, where you know, nature just had its way. Mm. And the freedom that we have now just because of that one change is something I don't think that we think about enough. We are so we live in a time where of course we still have challenges and we need to we need to protect our rights to control our own destinies, but we also do need to be grateful to the women who came before us and you know the 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 technology that we have access to that enables us to live our lives the way that we want to. Indeed, well said. Um are your three female leads in this book, Grace Beth and Marianne, are they inspired by real life characters? No, they're not. Um, so I actually think every character I write is is a conglomeration of every person I've ever met. <laughs> it's a really weird, it's very strange because, you know, I, I pick up the tiniest pieces of people that I don't even necessarily recognize I don't think when it's happening so every character has its own quirks and they have their own likes and dislikes and struggles and strengths and again it's the the soup in the writer's mind you know I think um 
most writers are people who are quite observant by nature. And so you're always, always cooking up new characters, but they're not, none, none of them are based on anybody. Um, I did want to write Mary Ann is, um, I'm, I'm quite fond of Mary. I'm quite fond of all of them, all of my characters. Um, they become, they become like friends, you know, you spend so much time in their heads or so much time thinking about them that they do, you do miss them a bit when you finish. But Marianne in particular, um, I wanted to, Marianne is a, is a hardcore early feminist, you know, before we use that word, that was, that was who she was. Um, and she is incredibly strong but also quite flawed. And I just, I really loved writing that character. She was so much fun to write. Kelly, you live in rural New South Wales. So I wanted to ask you, and I ask this a lot of writers who live away from the cities, do you think that rural living has helped you with your writing? I, if you'd asked me that question a few months ago, I think I would have said no. Um, that I just because I do tend to write in cafes and at the library in Orange near where I live, but um, but I think over time I'm really starting to appreciate my little. I live on a couple of acres now, and um, I'm you know 20 minutes kind of from the nearest town, and I that little patch of paradise is becoming such an important buffer from the noise of the world. I don't have the best internet here and it's <laughs> um, it's easier to focus <laughs> than it would be somewhere where I could just watch YouTube on, on <laughs> upon the impulse to do so. Um, and I really do find this, I, I love living in the country. I, I lo- you know, I used to live in Sydney and I love Sydney too. And I guess you can find something to love about every place that you live, but there's something about the peacefulness here that is really, I think, deepening my writing. Does it help you balance life with your writing? <laughs> yes, it really does. Um, it's, a great, it's a great way of remembering that. Um, well, I, I just I was on tour in the US and I was doing all these fantastic events and, you know, there was quite a lot of flattery going on and my ego was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and then I come home <laughs> and the dogs are chasing a goanna. <laughs> and, you know, the internet's not working and, oh, my goodness, do we have enough water and it hasn't rained for years. You know, this yeah. is the real world. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> It brings you back yeah. down to earth very quickly, it I does. imagine. But ego is like the enemy of good writing yeah. because you, you you need you need to kind of I mean you have to believe in yourself, but you also have to be realistic about there are hundreds of thousands of books published every year, and every book you churn out, whether it be fast or slow, some people are going to love it and some people are going to hate it, mm. and that's it's so subjective and so uh, humility is so important. So I'm really glad that I have. My, my little bubble here to to um keep me grounded. So Kelly, did you always want to be a writer? Yes, I am the ultimate writer cliche. I um I my dad tells me that in kindergarten I told him I was going to be an author one day, but I I remember reading Heidi when I was eightish, and um it was that was the book that switched it on for me. I was living in Western Sydney, and I remember reading the book and looking around my room and then reading the book again and thinking, how, how is this book taking me to the Swiss Alps? You know, I could Mm. smell the the clean air and I could taste the goat's cheese and smell the hay, you know, it was Mm. so real. And I thought, whatever this magic is, that's what I want to do. And so from then, creative writing was always my hobby and always has been until now. The funny thing is I still, I still write for fun. Um, it's still fun to write for the most part. You know, of course, now I have deadlines and, you know, this, it's not all fun and games, but 
there is still nothing better for me than when I'm really engrossed in a story and it's coming together and the words are either flowing out or being dragged out of me depending on the day, but there's still nothing better. It's still my favourite thing to do other than spending time with my family, of course. Of course. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, that's lovely to hear. There are a lot of aspiring or emerging writers and even published writers who listen to this podcast so I wanted to ask you what would be your top three tips for anyone out there who's looking to have their first novel published or anyone who aspires to be a writer oh okay so the first thing I would say is that your first draft is meant to be rubbish so you can't edit and write at the same time I don't think there's a person alive who can edit and write at the same time there's different parts of your brain and my 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 top tip would be just get to the finish line of your first draft. It can be too short. It can be too long. Length doesn't matter. It's going to be it's going to be rubbish and it's meant to be rubbish. But once you have words on the page, then you can switch into edit mode and polish it and refine it. So I think a lot of writers kind of trip up on the fact that it seems like such a big, big deal to write a novel. You know, you're talking, depending on the genre, 60,000 words to like 150,000 words. And that is a big piece of work. Mm. But if you just forget about length and just write a draft and then focus on length and fluency and, you know, clever plot twists that don't quite work, figure out how to make them work properly, all that stuff can come later. Don't let the idea of the big piece of work and, and thinking that it has to be perfect as it flows out of you. It doesn't and actually shouldn't be. No first drafts are great. They don't all have to be as bad as my first drafts are. But <laughs> if you stop thinking about whether they're good or bad and just get the words on the page, then you can edit it later. That would be number one. Um, number two is that... I was published first through a digital-only publishing house in the UK. That was a wonderful experience, but it really opened my eyes to the fact that there is no one way to be published anymore. So for a long time, I thought I would, you know, I was writing for fun and I had a couple of finished novels that I didn't know what to do with. And every now and again, I would Google, you know, how to get published in Australia or how to find an agent in Australia. And it seemed so hard. It actually seemed quite impossible. And so I let the, that discourage me from even attempting to be published for such a long time. But these days, if you get a no from the major publishing houses, then there's other places to go. And there's, you know, there's, the internet has opened things up to us in a way that is so unique. We live in a great time for writing and, you know, be open-minded about how you're going to be published. Avoid, you know, vanity publishers, et cetera, but, but don't think there's only one way. You don't necessarily need that agent. You don't need an agent depending on where you want to be published. And if it's if you get 20 no's, then there's another 200 places that you can approach. So there's no one way to be published now. Um, and the third one is probably, again, quite cliche, but you have to read widely. Read everything you can get your hands on. Every book that you pick up can teach you something. Even if it's a book that you don't enjoy or don't finish, you, you can ask yourself, why didn't I enjoy it? What would I have done differently? Mm. Why couldn't I finish it? Um, so, and I also, in the last few years, I've been really conscious of the fact that it's not just books that have something to teach me. It's all writing. It's musicals. You know, I I learned, listened to the Hamilton soundtrack a thousand times a few years ago and really focused on the way that um, Lin-Manuel Miranda used themes and imagery that kept recurring. That I learned from that. You know, I can learn from this American Life, the podcast, has taught me so many things about great storytelling and music can teach me and, you know, so absorb all forms of writing and do so critically so that you can, you know, enhance your own storytelling abilities. So that's my top three. Fantastic. 
Are you working on anything else at the moment? What's next for you? Um, I'm writing in two genres at the moment. So I'm writing, um, I've, <laughs> um, which works for my crazy chaotic process because when I get stuck on one, I can switch to the other and they're so different. I don't think, I don't think my brain realises that we're still writing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've, I've just finished uh, Contemporary Romance, um, which doesn't have a publication date yet. Probably, I don't know, I think later this year, maybe early next year. Um, and I'm also writing a World War II a historical that is entirely set in the, um, Poland during the occupation mm-hmm. and in the early years of the Soviet, um, of you know, communism. So um, I'm, I'm definitely still writing. Kelly, if readers wanted to connect with you, where can they find you? I am at, on Facebook. Um, actually, probably the easiest way to find me is to go to my website and all of my social links are through there, which is kellyrimmer.com. Kelly, Thank you very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books in what will be the very first episode of 2020. Wishing you every success with this book and the many more undoubtedly to come. Thank you, Claudine. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.